Deborah Becker, welcome to Exit Strategy. I have been so looking forward to this conversation. I want to bring your unique voice into this space because you have an incredible story to share. And so I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast. Stephanie, it's such an honor. Thank you for having me. Of course. Your voice, I have to say, is really nourished and informed by an incredibly rich and varied set of professional and personal experiences and evolution. So let me just talk for a moment about who you are and what you've accomplished. You have worked and taught in the social action sphere. You were trained by Zen monks in compassionate care, and you spent years volunteering on the hospice floor at Bellevue Hospital here in New York City. You are on the spiritual care team for the American Red Cross, and at age 50, you became an ordained interfaith minister. So the reason that you're here is because in 2021, we saw the publication of your book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Katie Couric has read and talked about this book as being one of the must-reads, and recently you were awarded the Gold Nautilus Award, so I just want to acknowledge that. So, the book. I suspect that all of your experiences have informed it, but can you talk a little bit about its origin and how it all began for you? The story of Hartwood really began when my earliest childhood friend, whose name was Marissa, was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer. She lived her remaining days with so much joy and so much presence, while I was just struggling to understand how she could be so joyful and how present she was. So around that time when she was given a year left to live, I went on a journey. I started reading every last thing I could about how we live our lives, knowing that we're going to die. And it turns out that sages throughout time, across religious traditions um, and philosophy from like Marcus Aurelius to the Judeo-Christian tradition to Buddha himself, they've all advised us that if we live our lives looking at the end of life, rather than pushing it away and running in the other direction, that we will live more richly, that that is the way to live a deeply fulfilling life. If we turn and face the fact that we're mortal, that we're frail human beings, and we really live into that, we have the chance of having a much more rich life as a result. When Marissa received this diagnosis, where did this spirit come from within her? Did she ever share that with you? I think what I observed in Marissa and what I've seen in other people who are dying is that your future story gets cut out. So you're no longer living with these questions of what am I going to do a month from now, a year from now, what do five years from now look like? And you are just left with that quotidian, that very, very minute moment in this present time 
to work with. And in that little space, there's room to breathe that we don't have when we're busy planning our lives. Let's talk about the title, Heartwood. It's an incredibly beautiful metaphor. And I want you to talk about what it represents and actually what it's meant to evoke and signify within the trajectory of this life journey. Heartwood is a metaphor that I came up with after I lost both of my parents. They died within a couple of months of one another and I was bereft. So I went out into nature, which is what I do when I'm seeking answers to big questions. And I learned something about the trees on one of my walks, which is that inside every tree is a pillar. It's stronger than the rest of the tree. It's very durable. It's darker usually, and it's called heartwood. You know, it's the part that's most prized by woodworkers because of that strength. And what was surprising to me to learn is that heartwood is actually inert. It's completely dead. But for the growth rings of the tree to continue to thrive and for the tree to grow, it needs that dead inner core. And it struck me that people are so much like the trees. I mean, the people that we have loved and lost form our heartwood. And those memories give us strength and support to carry on and to grow around them. That is truly such a beautiful, beautiful metaphor and so very true. So let's talk about these wonderful individuals in your book. I feel like I know them all. Beautiful stories. And of course, I love seeing the photographs because I needed to see what they look like. You know, you you describe them so well. So I'm curious, did you keep a diary of all of these people? What inspired you to talk specifically about all these individuals? I was one of those kids who was drawn to the movies that had death and dying in them, like <laughs> Terms of Endearment. Terms of Endearment yes. might have been my favorite film as a young person. You could connect in with the characters in that film and understand their plight through the heart. And I started jotting down little stories to myself back in the day when you got those diaries as gifts that had a little lock on them. <laughs> I want you to know I kept a diary for six years and they're up in my attic. <laughs> I'm so glad you still have them. They're precious. They're so nice to refer back to. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, messages from the desk of God come through the stories of our fellow human beings. We only need to listen. And what that says to me is that story is a shortcut to the divine, to the eternal. I see that in the stories of death and dying, we really hit the essence of who we are as people who struggle and love and strive and are passionate. I want to talk about a couple of the stories. All of them were so incredibly profound. The first story you tell about the death of your father's first wife truly left me trembling trembling. I want you to share a little bit about that and about the statement, someone had to die for me to live. That statement really stopped me in my tracks. 
So I first learned about my father's first wife when I was only eight years old. I had been snooping around in my dad's wallet while he was out, and I saw a picture of my mom, and I saw a frayed edge of a photograph behind it, and I pulled it out, and I saw this beautiful young woman, and I had no idea who she was. And right as I was standing there, probably with my jaw down on the ground, my mom walked in, and I demanded of her to tell me who this woman was. And she said, that was Maureen, that was your father's first wife. And it turns out my dad had been married to Maureen for a very short time. She died after their honeymoon in a terrible, tragic boating accident. But her presence was like a benevolent ghost, I would say, in our home. She was very much present in our life. And I would say to my brothers in those moments where I started to ask the existential questions, you guys, somebody actually had to die for us to live. We wouldn't have been born if she hadn't died. I hear from a lot of readers, especially a lot of readers who are Jewish, who've had experiences around losing family members during the Holocaust, where this chapter has sort of sends shivers down their spine because it's a similar story of somebody dying and life continuing. And it's a big thing to take in and to understand, and it can be painful and the happiness of the memory of the essence of that person can also carry on. And I think also it puts a level of responsibility on your shoulders when you know that someone died and as a result of that death, here you are. So whether that's conscious or subconscious, I think that's in there somewhere as well. It is in there, that interconnection between my family and Maureen's family in England and her nieces and nephews. They're people that I think about all the time and I'm completely interwoven with. So your family just extended itself, right? In a really profound That's and right. beautiful way. Yeah. You entered another level of understanding around the exact time that Heartwood was published with your own serious medical episode, a breast cancer diagnosis. First of all, how are you? How are you feeling? How are things going for you right now? Oh, Stephanie, thank you for asking. Um, it's been a journey. It's been a two-year journey so far. I am doing well. My doctors are very optimistic, but you're right. It was actually literally on the day that Heartwood came out that I was having surgery for breast cancer wow. and this new diagnosis. So, you know, when authors have book launches and it's all a giant celebration of these many years of work and toil, I was just lying in a hospital bed and really being forced to look at my own words to see how they held up in the face of a real, you know, where the rubber meets the road kind of moment. And I'm, I'm happy to say they did. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to know. But how incredibly profound for you to be in that moment, in that space, with all that was going on around you and within you, probably hard to put words to that, right? 
It is hard to put words to that. But one thing that I've really come to understand in the process of doing this work is that the difficult things that happen in life aren't so much roadblocks that we have to figure out a way around and then we'll continue living our lives after we pass them, but they actually are our lives. I mean, they are places that we have to go through to make sense of so that we can become more holy who we are supposed to be. You know, the Taoists have this wonderful expression that this is a world of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And it's our job to honor all of that and to dance between the two, not just to live our lives as we do in our culture, looking only for the joy. Well, please know, I speak for not only myself, but all of the listeners when I say we're so happy that you have received good news and you're doing okay. Thank you. So let's talk about the society we live in. You refer to it as a death-shy society, which I think is very accurate. Talk about what you meant by that based on your observations and your exposures. I was so fortunate to grow up in a home where my parents took care of both of my grandmothers at the end of their lives. And I knew even then that that was a unique experience, that most of the time our elderly or people who weren't physically able in some way were sort of hidden away essentially in facilities and homes where they aren't really visible to the rest of us. I'm not saying that that's always wrong. I mean, sometimes we have to find the best situation that fits our family's needs. But the result is that we're not comfortable around illness, and we're certainly not comfortable around death. So we do become a death-shy world. You know, I had an experience recently where I sat down with a friend who I had lost touch with for a couple of decades, but she was in New York and she has metastatic cancer. And we met in a coffee shop and she was so eager to talk about her impending death, essentially. So we sat in that coffee shop and we were talking and talking and the seats around us started filling in. And I started noticing that especially the young adults who had their laptops open, were sort of leaning in to listen to this conversation because it's so rare. You know, we don't model it for other people. And yet that hunger and thirst to talk about our mortality is truly there. You're so right. Very often people are put away, sometimes necessarily so, but other times out of convenience. And as a result, we're doing a disservice to the next generation. So we have to talk about an important character in your book. He's important. He's Felix the skeleton. Okay, <laughs> Felix. So dear beloved Felix was the skeleton that my grandfather was assigned to when he was in medical school in the early 1900s. And back in the day, 
unbelievable. Unbelievable. And in that time, it was not unusual for the doctors to take the skeleton with them when they graduated from medical school. So when my grandfather finished, Felix came along and he was in my grandfather's medical office. And then my dad became a doctor and he passed Felix to my father. And then my brother became a doctor and he passed Felix to my brother. So Felix, when I was growing up, my, my dad was a neurosurgeon and he actually used Felix's skull as a tool for practicing very complicated neurosurgical procedures because the inside of a skull, not the smooth top part, but underneath is full of ridges and valleys. And my father would practice that very delicate surgery. So we knew he was important. We knew he was meant to be absolutely respected. And I was like a little Hamlet almost sitting at my dad's <laughs> desk, holding a skeleton in my hand, you know, looking deeply into this real fact that we are going to die, that we all have this element of skeleton within us. Unbelievable. And where is Felix now? Oh, I am so happy to report <laughs> that we have now turned Felix over to the medical examiner's office in New Jersey, and they assigned Felix to a high school classroom. And ironically and beautifully, synchronistically, it was the same high school where my two nieces went to school, and one of them is studying to become a doctor. So we are never far oh. from Felix in our lives. <laughs> You see, there is a rhythm to this life, for sure. I want to talk about your experience with Zen monks. I think it's incredibly rich. If you would, for a moment, talk about how you connected with them and your journey alongside them. There is a center in New York City called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. And I thought I would go check them out at some point because it seemed to me that Zen has an approach to everything that is about simplicity and about like a radical truth. So I went to a couple of talks by these two Zen monks and I fell in love with them. And I learned that they had a training program to teach people to be a compassionate presence at the bedside. So I went through their training program and I learned such practical, wise things from them. Now, they told me at one point when I was so intimidated about entering the room of my first patient, one of them, Chodo, said to me, you know, Barbara, it sure sounds like you are trying to have the answers to all of the anticipated questions. Like you're afraid of what they'll ask you, like what happens after we die and you're trying to over-prepare. But if you sure. walk into the room of a hospice patient and they are watching Jeopardy on television, your job simply is to pull up the chair alongside the bed and to watch Jeopardy with them. And it was such a relief to know that it's more about showing up than about fixing things or having all of the answers. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. It's about your presence, your presence in that moment. And when we sit Shiva after the death of a family member or friend, that's also the purpose of Shiva is for the community to simply show up and be present. And I think there's a great lesson in all of that. 
Let's talk about Bellevue Hospital for a moment. I want you to talk about your experience there a little bit on the hospice floor. So for those of you who don't know Bellevue, it's our largest public hospital in New York City. And it really represents a patient population that comes from all over the world, every country and culture imaginable. So I had this great fortune of being assigned to the hospice floor and getting to meet people from around the world and to see how they made meaning at the end of their lives. So for instance, I had a patient who was a Maori woman. She was indigenous from New Zealand. She was quite young. She had come to New York on an art fellowship and she was diagnosed with a terminal illness. So she was in her hospital bed, far away from family members. And at one point she said to me, Barbara, you think I'm alone, but I'm really not. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, in my tradition, we believe that the ancestors gather around our bedsides when it's time to transition. And they're here. They're here for me. They will reach out their arms and they will take me with them. The culture that I grew up in didn't have an ancestor belief system like that. So I found it incredibly comforting. And I saw this over and over again, tradition after tradition, such beautiful rites and passages that help us ease into whatever it is that we believe comes next. How amazing to receive that life lesson. It shows you that yes. there are lessons to be learned everywhere we go. So how do we get people comfortable with dying? What's the answer? What can we do? I think one of the important things to realize is that this is really about beginnings and endings, and they can be found everywhere in life. When I say goodbye to my husband, when he's taking off in the morning, like that's a goodbye. And it's an important time to practice the small Heart. It's important to put down my gadget and to get up and wish him a good day. And when we find those little opportunities to say goodbye, to wish people well after we've just had a meal together or we're finishing a vacation with a dear friend, how do we handle those moments? And in that, I think we start practicing for the larger losses. I mean, this book really is a book that has touched people with losses that I hadn't even imagined. Some people have come to me and said, you know, this really resonates with the breakup of my marriage or becoming an empty nester when my child has gone off to college and I'm alone for the first time in decades or losing an object even, something that was such a treasured family heirloom is gone forever. Like how do we relate to losses of all kinds? And I think that's how we do it. We practice step by step. And you're so right. There are so many different types of losses. And we actually talked about that on the very first podcast we did with Rabbi David Wolpe, all about the different losses there are. So I think your point about being present is one of the ways we can really absorb that moment. Speaking of all the different aspects that we bring to the table, your various religious components make up who you are. 
from Jewish to Christian to Buddhist, I imagine that that has enabled you to become comfortable in a different way with end-of-life experiences because you see it from so many different angles. That is absolutely true. So I grew up in a Christian household and I was educated by the Quakers who believe in the spark within all of us that is a, a fragment of the divine. And then I met my husband, David, who is Jewish, and we lived in a very Jewish neighborhood on the Lower East Side of Manhattan for 30 years. Our building was largely Orthodox. And I got to attend community shivas. And I learned so much from Jewish grief rituals that really informs all of my practice today. I really think Judaism cornered the idea of sitting with that presence that you were talking about during a shiva, bringing food covering mirrors in the Orthodox tradition. I saw that often, not taking care of our, our bodily needs. We don't need to take a shower while we're doing Shiva and it doesn't matter because we too are of a frail body that is of the nature to die. And then being a witness to families at the end of the Shiva period, taking a walk around the block and re-entering this life as we know it so profound and so absolutely moving to me. The Buddhists also have has such a profound effect on me. Buddhist monks for centuries have been meditating in charnel grounds, and this is where bodies were placed above the ground. They weren't buried. Often this would happen in the Himalaya mountains. And this practice really helped inform the monks about their own mortality so that they could be more present and show up for others. It's amazing to hear all of this. So where do you think we are as a society? Or where should we be? There's a movement now called Death Acceptance. And it is a push for us to live what the positive psychologists would call a more psychologically rich life, which means that we, we actually do look with big curiosity and openness at these difficult conversations. And in that space, we do find the richness. I mean, I would actually go as far as to say that we want to be a more compassionate society, that presence that we bring to people who are ill or at the very end of their lives that's where the compassion is going to come from. This is how we're going to change our world. And I believe this firmly about conversations around death and dying. I really think we need more of them. Totally agree. And I will say that I believe that Plaza has helped to elevate this conversation, certainly in the New York City area. And things are different today than they were 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. When I learned about Plaza, I learned that there was a resource that my own family will turn to when we need it. So I'm so grateful to you for all of your work. I appreciate that. And Barbara Becker, you are such a gift. And your voice is not only profound and needed, but it's, it's in the book Heartwood. The show notes will have information on Barbara and Heartwood and people should pick it up and read it because it is inspiring. It is life-affirming in the midst of all these stories. 
And I thank you so much for taking the time and being in conversation with us today. Thank you. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.